Welcome to the Cross Loganville podcast. Today we are in our December sermon series, Advent, the Anticipation. Good morning, guys. How are we? Merry Christmas to you. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm Benji Cash. I'm uh, Tim's oldest son. I got the privilege of being with you guys uh, from week to week. If you got your Bibles this morning, we're going to go ahead and uh, open up to uh, Luke chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. We uh, Dad spent some time last week uh, touching on a couple of these passages, and we're going to spend a little bit of time digging down into it. So I want to pray for us this morning, and we'll rock and roll. So Father, we, thanks, uh, we just thank you again for the chance to come worship. God, we thank you for um, just this opportunity to come and open up your word, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will speak through me. I pray that you open up our hearts to hear uh, from your word, Lord, what you want to say. God, I pray that you will come and have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. As we're looking at Christmas here next week, started thinking about uh, the last couple weeks. Like, Have you ever gotten a gift that was just life-changing? Like opened up something, uh, maybe growing up as a kid, you had a bike, or, or maybe you got uh, like a new dollhouse or a playground or something out back. Uh, as an adult, maybe somebody like bought you a car. Uh, maybe somebody like paid for you to take. I know everybody laughs at bought you a car. It happens. There's people out there. Uh, maybe somebody paid for like a, a trip of a lifetime. Like you've had this, this dream trip and somebody gifted this trip to you. What is a gift that has been life-changing. When I was 16 years old, I was down, vividly remember, I was in uh, a swimming pool at the condo we were staying at down in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. Uh, And at 16 years old, I had created the perfect case for why at 16 I should be able to get my first tattoo. And so I remember pitching this idea to my mom and dad in the swimming pool this day. Ink Master was a tattoo show that had just come out and began to get all into tattoos. A couple buddies of mine uh, had gotten tattooed, and so I posed this idea of like, man, I think we go to Alabama, everything's legal in Alabama, right? You go to Alabama at 16 years old, if you go to Alabama at 16 years old, I mean, you can get tattooed. So I pitched this idea, and in great wisdom, they said, absolutely not. Maybe when you graduate high school, uh, we'll talk about it. So 18 came, graduated high school, got some graduation money, about a week or two later, man, I was at the tattoo shop getting my first tattoo. A couple months later, I go off to college. I was up at, uh, in Murfreesboro, Middle Tennessee, and I'd taken a couple of guitars that I'd had at the time. And uh, because the rhythmic and musical gene does not run deep in the Cash family, uh, I thought I could probably get a better use out of these guitars. So I thought if I take these to a pawn shop, man, I bet they'll give me a little bit of cash for these things. So I took these two guitars, sold them at a pawn shop for 120 bucks, and later that afternoon, I was at a tetanus shot guaranteed tattoo shop in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, getting my second tattoo. And I remember I texted it to dad, and I was like, hey, man, look what I, look what I got. Sold some guitars, maybe don't tell mom, and uh, here's, what, here's what I got. I got Isaiah 4031 on my arm. He's like, well, what would you get that for? And I said, well, down at, at his mom and dad's house, uh, my, my nanny had uh, this, this verse on uh, the wall behind their toilet, and I used the bathroom a lot. And over my childhood, I memorized, I memorized this verse. And so I was like, man, I, you know, got Isaiah 4031. And let me tell you, there's some good decisions I've made in my life, and there's some bad ones. There are a few that in my mom's eyes was as bad as pawning some guitars uh, from a broke college kid and going to get tattooed. And over these months, I became more and more enamored in tattoos. And I loved them and began to get interested in them. I kept saying, Mom, you just got to go get a tattoo with me. Come get a tattoo with me. Come get a tattoo with me. And it was met with a very clear and a very firm uh, no all the time. Uh, and then one Christmas, we sit down as a family. Uh, we're sitting in the living room and we start opening up gifts. And my mom gives me this gift and it's this old antique Bible. 
And as I open up this Bible, it's like a, she started taking me on, on a scavenger hunt of sorts of notes through different uh, Bible verses. Uh, and they weren't verses that were speaking against tattoos. Some of you legalists are like, missing an opportunity there. But they were all these verses, they were all these notes in the Bible that, that she was just speaking some, some affirmations and speaking some words of encouragement. And we get to the last page number, and I open up and I read the note, and it says, for Christmas, my mom was going to get a tattoo with me. And let me tell you all, that morning, there is yet to be a gift, I think, in my life that has brought me such immediate joy and gratification as knowing that my mom was going to get tattooed. Because in my mind, there was no limits at that point. Like, it was game on. If mom was in for the tattoos, then I was in for the tattoos, and all the more were to come. And I remember that morning, though, I was like, man, this gift changed everything for me. Like for a man, growing up as a kid, I loved tattoos. As an adult, it's been a part of me and my wife, uh, just, just some interest and hobby of ours. And for my mom to be in now meant everything to me. And I think if we look at the Christmas story now, we look at the gift and the birth of Jesus, we're going to do one of two things, or we're going to think one of two things. The first thing is we're going to see the gift of Jesus and we're going to really authentically, deep down inside, recognize that there has never been a more vital, a more important, and a more valuable gift to ever be given to mankind. The second option is going to be we're going to see it as a gift that we like to be associated with at times, but we fail to truly understand the depth of the value. You think about a kid, man, we're going to have a bunch of kids opening up gifts here in a couple days. And for most kids, they don't understand at times the value and the sacrifice it took to provide the gifts that you do. Some of you guys growing up, you know, it's like, man, if money was tight, if things were tight, it's like you know the sacrifice it takes to provide a gift for your child. And very often the kid, he can't understand the value of that gift. And I think at times the church, at times followers of Jesus, we live in a culture, we live in a place where it's free and easy. It is culturally normal to be a Christian. You ask most people on the street, are you a Christian? They're going to say yes, but they really don't understand the value. They don't understand the meaning of what they're even saying yes to. And so what I want us to do this morning, we're going to take kind of some time to walk through a couple passages. We're going to reference a few things starting in Genesis. And we're going to work our way through the Old Testament and into the life of Jesus. Because my hope and prayer is that at the end of our time, we will really come to understand or maybe be reminded that the gift of Jesus is the most valuable and the most important thing that we will ever, ever come to understand this morning. So we're going to start out. Reference to Genesis chapter 1. We see right off the first pages of Scripture. Genesis 1.1, it says, God created. In the beginning, God created. And in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we see this creator God simply with the utterance of his voice speak into being creation and things that blow our minds still to this day. I love looking at articles and things from the James Webb telescope that NASA will put out of just these nebulas and these galaxies and these new stars that are being birthed and looking at things that are billions and billions of light years away and seeing the glorious magnitude, things that our finite minds, we can't understand. And God spoke it all into being. And then he began to create the planets and he created earth. And he picked this place that we read of called Eden. And in this place of Eden, he created the best of the best. The most beautiful, the most abundant, the most elaborate creation that God could speak into being. He placed into Eden. And they said, man, I want to create man. 
Man, I want to create these, these beings to come and to have relationship with me. I want them to have connection with me like none of my other creation can. Man, I want to, I want to create my, my children. I want them to come and walk with me in the cool of the day. I want to teach them. I want to have unity with, with this relationship with man. And we see God creates Adam and Eve. And I can only imagine like in those first days, right, Adam and Eve have been created and God's created all that's in the garden. It says, man, they would go for walks in the evening together. And you can just imagine Adam and Eve and they're, they're experiencing some of these creation for the first time with the creator. What better way to get insight into insects and into plants and into what they were looking at in the stars except to do it with the one who created it. And we see this beautiful dynamic of the way God originally intended man and God's relationship to be. Perfect unity, in sync, walking together, full of God's presence. And in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to the serpent. The serpent comes into the garden and it begins to whisper lies into the ears of man that we've believed ever since. The lie that, man, maybe God doesn't want what's best for you. Man, maybe God's holding out on you a little bit. Man, I, I know he's giving you abundance. He's given you the ability to live in perfect unity with him. He's given you everything. But Satan's lie from the beginning of Scripture in Genesis is to get us to believe, man, God's holding out on you. He's keeping something from you. Man, you could be just like God. If you go and eat of this, you, you, your mind will be opened up in a way. He doesn't really want what's best for you. And Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve fall into this temptation. They fall into this line. They eat of the fruit, and immediately there's a fracture in the relationship with God and with man. That this perfect unity that God intended, this oneness, this relational equity that, that was so, so deep and tender with man and God, when man began to believe, I think I might actually know what's best, we see a fracture in the relationship. And once sin entered into, when man decided, I think I actually might know what's best, we see that God, the, the institution, the penalty that was rightfully owed for that decision was death. God said, man, I'm, so, I'm too holy. My character, like, like who I am, I can't be in the presence of something that is sinful, something that is unholy. It goes against who I am. I can't be associated with that nature and uh, nature of my character. And so we see God, he's like, man, I've, I've got to set you outside of my presence. And don't think that this brought God any joy. Don't think for a minute that, that, that God's heart just very flippantly just had to, to do away with his children. But he said, because you did not trust me in who my character is, there's now separation. There's this, there's this fracture in the relationship between you and I. And in all of this, we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God curses the serpent. He curses the ground. And all of the things that he curses, he never once curses man, but he actually begins for the first time we see this thread that God's going to run throughout the scriptures of a promise of hope to come. And in essence, what he tells Eve is he says, through the woman, through man, through my creation, through the creation that has jacked it up, not trusted me, not followed me, not believed what I said was best for him. Despite that decision, through man, through Eve, I'm going to send one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. I will send one one day. I will send a man out of the line of Eve that's going to stomp the head and crush it. And the serpent will strike the heel, but it will be to no prevail. 
The serpent's strike will not be fatal, but rather the stomp, the crushing blow to the head of the serpent will be fatal. We see for the first time, right as we get into Scripture, God says, man, I'm going to bring hope. Like it brings me no joy that you're now separated from me, and so there will come one who will restore hope. And we read on in Genesis and we get, to, we get to Noah and we see that God says that, man, like every bent desire for man was just evil all the time. Like we, like we see in Genesis 4, 5, 6, that we're like, man, man's not bent to do that which is most redemptive and most valuable and most productive. We see that man's bent is towards selfishness, it's towards pride, it's to do what, what satisfies me, it's to bring pleasure to me. And we see man continue to walk away and separate themselves from God. And we see God begin to instill this idea of sacrifice and bloodshed for the atonement of sin. And this is so vital, guys, this is so vital. If you're taking notes, write this down this morning, that, that this idea of atonement, to atone is to suffer the penalty for sins, thereby removing the effects of sin from the repentant sinner and allowing him or her to be reconciled to God. So in essence, what we see when God begins to instill this idea of sacrifice, he's saying, hey, because I love you so much, and and, and I want there to be some kind of unity brought back together, I'm instilling this idea of a sacrifice because your decision... Tara's decision, right, my decision, dad's decision, Rick's decision to sin, to fall into the desires of the flesh, it is owed your life. That is what we owe God is the punishment of our life. But he said, man, because I love my kids and I don't want you to have to pay for your sin with your own blood and with your own life, God said, I will allow you to take a perfect unblemished, unharmed, uh, a a lamb, a goat, a a cow of some sort, something that is completely innocent of any wrongdoing. And I want you to slit the throat of that, 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 that animal. And as the blood pours out over the altar, God says the death and the purity of the blood that is spilling out will temporarily reconcile and atone. It'll cover the wrongdoing of your sin and allow us to have connection again. And we might think, well, God, that seems a little aggressive. That seems a little aggressive, don't you think, to, to, to make us have to do such a thing? Why does death have to be the penalty? And we've got to recognize again, God, like, like we have fallen into this belief, this, this Hellenistic version of philosophy for man that, that has removed God from the center of our life and has put man at the center. So we think things revolve around us. We think God created us for him to please us. We think that we come to church to be served. We want to come in here and we want to make sure our kids are taken care of nice. And we want the coffee to taste good, not like Chick-fil-A's. We want to come in here and have some good coffee. We want to come in here and make sure the service isn't too long. We want to make sure the AC and the temperature is right. Because we believe, man, ultimately things revolve around us. So we think, God, why would you cause, cause the penalty to be death? That seems a little excessive. And we've got to understand that we were created to serve a holy God. We were created to serve a God that, that, that whose character, and it says, man, God dwells, his dwelling places in unapproachable light. It's in places that we can never enter into on our own. 
the Holy of Holies, the intermittent part of the temple, was a place where God's presence dwelt. And only one time a year could, could the high priest enter into the holiest of holy places where God's presence dwelt to atone for sin. And even then, legend has it that they would tie a rope around the dude's foot just in case he had some kind of stuff he hadn't dealt with and God struck him dead in his presence. Why? Because God's presence is holy. It is deserving of holiness. And so God said the only way that that can be reconciled, that relationship can be reconciled, is blood has to be shed. But man, I love my kids. I don't want your blood to have to be that which covers your sin. So I will allow you to take a lamb, to take an animal, to take something that is unblemished and pure. But in doing so, as the neck would be slit and as the blood would pour out, the man or the woman is to look and say, man, that deserves to be me. I deserve to be the one laying there torn open, bleeding out. But thanks be to God and his great love and mercy for me. Thank you for his mercy in sparing my life. We continue and we get to Genesis chapter 12. We see continuously man's sin, man seeks, continues to seek to desire that which pleases himself. But in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a man named Abram, or Abraham as he'll be known. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Scripture tells us that Abraham was a righteous man. We see this pattern of man after man after man. Like, man, we're, we're jacked up, we're, we're bent towards selfishness, we're bent towards our desires. Then we get this little bit of hope. We see this man, Abraham, and God says, man, he was a righteous man. He loved me. He desired to do, to do that which honor me. He desired to walk with me, to serve me, to, to make sacrifice of atonements, to cover the sins of he and his family. And so we see on the heels of Eve, there's this promise of hope that one day I'm going to send someone. And we see through the lineage of Eve, we get to the man Abraham and the, the hope picks up and the promise at the very end in verse 3 there where he says, all peoples will be blessed through this guy. We know that Abraham will go on to have a son, Isaac, and God will pass that promise on to Isaac. Isaac will have a son named Jacob, and God will pass that promise again on to Jacob. Jacob will have 12 sons and become the 12 tribes of Israel and the Jewish people. And we see God pass this blessing down to say, through this family line, through your kids, through, through the generations of the Israelites, through the generations of these people, I'm going to be a blessing to all nations. The second promise of hope that we see. As we progress, we get to the book of Exodus. And for time's sake, we're not going to be able to get into it much. We see this guy named Moses. And much like Abraham, Moses, man, like, like God, God grabs a hold of Moses. and says, man, I want to use you as an instrument if you'll trust me. And Moses, man, he's like us. He's fearful. He's afraid. He doesn't think that he's got what it takes. But God said, if you'll just come with me, if you'll just trust me, I'm going to use you to be a blessing. I'm going to use you to free my people. As we know that Moses goes to Pharaoh, all the Israelites, the 12 tribes of Jacob, the Israelite people, God's people are in slavery. They're in captivity. And God says, Moses, go to Pharaoh, go to the ruler of the Egyptians and tell him to let my people go. 
And we know that Pharaoh says no. And we see God begins to make these power moves, so to speak, of these plagues over Egypt. And after a couple of them, he'll say, hey, let my people go. Pharaoh says, absolutely not. And we progress through and we get to the last plague here where God tells Moses, you need to go and tell the Israelite people, go and tell the people that they need to go and slay a lamb. They need to take, again, this atoning blood, this covering blood of an innocent lamb. You need to kill the lamb and take the blood and cover the doorposts with it. Why? Because when the angel of death is going to sweep through tonight, it's going to take the life of the firstborn of all Egypt. When it comes across the doorpost of the atoning covering blood that through faith my people will put on their doorpost, I will pass over and spare them. And we see this unbelievable picture here. God says, take the innocent blood of the lamb, paint it across your doorpost, and through faith you've got to trust that I will spare your life through the atoning blood of the lamb. And so the Israelites go and, and, and they do this and Pharaoh eventually lets the people go and we see that the people now are free. And so we assume the Israelites, man, they're free from slavery. They're going to start serving God, right? Wrong, right? <laughs> we see this pattern continues. Man continues to think that they know what's best. They continue to sin against God. Anyway, and we get to the kings and we get to Samuel and we see the Israelites saying, that's what they say, hey, man, we want a ruler. We, we want a real king. Like, like all these other nations, they got these people that are rising up and ruling over them. We want one of those guys. And in essence, what they were saying was, God, you're not satisfactory for us. Like you're not enough. We want a man to rule over us, then we'll be happy. And as God so often does, he gives man over to their fickle and finite minds of reasoning and says, okay, you want a man? And we see God begin to institute these kings, and man, we got a list of a bunch of jacked up dudes trying to rule a people that they were never meant to rule. We see a couple of good ones sprinkled in here and there, but time and time again, we see that man was never meant to rule over God's people. God was meant to be ruler over God's people. But we get a king. We see this man named David. And now David was different than the other kings that you'll read. Right, like we know that scripture talks about, man, David was a man after God's own heart, which meant David, man, he, he, his heart broke for the things that God's heart broke for. He rejoiced and he loved the things that God loved. We see that David had this heart like God. He, he wanted to, to love God and to serve God. And he wanted to create a place, a temple for his presence to dwell. He wanted to lead the nation of God's people in a way that pointed them back to God. And we see, we see God saying, man, that's, that's my heart. And so you can read about David in 1 and 2 Samuel, but we see another, another promise come. Just like Eve, just like Abraham, we see another promise of hope. And God, in essence, he promises David this. He says that through David, through the king who's got a heart like God's, his throne and his kingdom will last forever. Through this king, through this one who trusts me, who wants to walk with me, who wants to serve me, who's got a heart to shepherd my people towards me, through this king. We continue to see this thread of hope, Bill. He says, this throne will never end. This throne is going to last forever. And we continue through the Old Testament. We see a God who is patient. We see a God who is full of love and grace and mercy that, that the Israelites and God's people, the family line that he wants to be a blessing, that he wants to reconcile through, man. They're going to continue to seek their own pleasures and God's going to give them over into captivity and slavery. And they're going to cry out and they're going to say, God, why have you left us? Why have you abandoned us? Why have you forgotten us? 
And God, man, he wants his kids back. So he's like, man, if you guys will come back to me, if you will, if you will serve me as your God, if you allow me to be ruler, man, that's what's best for you. And they'll say, we're in. And God will free them. He'll bring them back from slavery. And what do we see? Man, we see this flesh pattern go right back to serving themselves. And we see this pattern, though, of God and his graciousness. He's like, man, I, I want my kids to come back to me. We see the prophets, man, they're calling God's people. They're saying, don't you see that this is a better way? Don't you see that the way that you're living, the life that you're choosing to live right now, that's satisfying your desires and your flesh patterns and your wants, it's killing you. It's destroying you. Won't you come back to the God that loves you, the God that knows what's best for you? And we see, man, time and time again, they, they, just, they just don't get it. And so we get to the end of the prophets. And God decided it's time to make good on my promise to strike the heel of the serpent, or strike the head of the serpent. It's time to make good on my promise to Eve that one's going to come. It's time for me to make good on my promise to Abraham that through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the lineage of the Israelites, I'm going to send one of hope. It's time to place a real king, the actual heart of God, back on the throne of David. No more sacrificial lambs. Man, the, the, the temporary coverage, it's not enough. Like They're continuing to, to have to come back and offer more and more sacrifice. It is time to, to institute an atonement that can last. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we pick up the story. How is he, through the seed, going to crush the serpent? How is he going to be a blessing to all nations? How is God going to choose to allow David's throne to last forever? Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor in God's eye. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you're going to bear a son, and you'll so call him Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, uh, overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. We fast forward in the story to chapter 2, verse 8. It says, in the same region there were shepherds out in their field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. 
And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. We see that in the person of Jesus, man, how is, who was to come? Who is the one that they would have looked towards and said, man, when is this promise of hope to crush the serpent going to come? How was God planning to be a blessing through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to all nations? Who was to sit on the throne with the true heart of God to, to reign forever? And we see that God fully clothed himself, all of divinity, all of creator, the one who spoke everything into being, says, I'm going to choose to clothe myself in flesh. And I'm going to come. I'm going to, I'm going to come as a servant. I'm going to come in a lowly way. I am going to come and offer myself as a gift of reconciliation to all people. God knew that the lamb's sacrifice would never be able to fully suffice. And so he said, I'm going to come. I am going to come so that my blood, fully God, full of divinity, when it is shed, it will cover and atone for my children's fleshly desires and sin once and for all. And I've got two sons right now, a four and a half year old and a two and a half year old. And man, there is nothing better and sweeter than my kids are living in obedience. And there is nothing more frustrating than when they're not. And I want you to imagine, like, if you've got kids, and I think about my boys, like, if my boys ever were to do something so disobedient, so vile, that, that, that it fractured and it, and it caused separation between them and I, that for whatever decision that they made, I was no longer able to be in their presence. I was no longer able to see them. Man, it would crush me. It would kill me from the inside out. And I promise you, there is nothing, no amount of money, nothing that I would not do to try to restore the relationship with my kids. No matter what they had done, if it was not my fault, it is a decision that they have made. And because of that decision, I can't be around them. I would do whatever it took to restore that relationship with my kids. Man, and we see God, like, again, he was not pleased. It brought his heart no joy to have to separate man from the garden. It brought his heart deep pain and sorrow when his kids continued to say, no, we want to do what we think's best. And God's like, man, if you'll just know that I know what's best for you. My four-year-old right now wants a lot of things, and he makes a lot of decisions that he thinks are best. And I'm trying to teach him, buddy, if you will trust dad, I'm trying to teach you what is good. I'm trying to teach you what is honoring. I'm trying to teach you what's respectful. I know you think the temporary pleasure of that is worth it, but it's not. And we see God say, man, if you would just trust me. And in the gift of Jesus this season, guys, we see that when Jesus came, he's like, man, this is me doing whatever it takes for you to come back and to walk in the garden with me. Man, like I want to go for walks in the evenings in the cool of the day with you. I want you to wake up and have your cup of coffee with me. Man, I want you to drive down the road on the way to a meeting that you're stressed out about and tell me about it and let me come join you in that place. I want that with my kids. And we see that the gift of Jesus, the whole reason we celebrate Christmas is because that which reconciles us to the Father has come. 
Flip over to Colossians chapter 1. I want us to ask the question, so God, why would you do this? Why did God choose to do this? Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. It says, he, this being Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, everything, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that everything in him might be preeminent. Verse 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God, all the the, the fullness, the deity, the, the depth of who God is, was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And here's where the gift for us is in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and you separated, uh, an enemy apart from who God is, the gift is that he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Why did God choose to do this? Why did God choose to gift us with the birth and the life and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus? Paul will write here, he's like, man, because he wanted to reconcile the relationship that we fractured. He says, there is nothing that the Father's love would not do to come after you, to open up an opportunity for you, to have that reunion, that that reconciliation, that relationship with you. He says, it brought God's heart joy to, to reconcile you, and then in light of this, he sees you as holy and blameless and above reproach in his eyes. Something that is completely undeserving. Without Jesus, without the gift of Jesus, without the hope of Jesus, we recognize that our lives will be completely meaningless. We will continue to strive to reach the pinnacle of success and culture, all to die and it to be absolutely worthless. Without Jesus, there's no hope, there's no peace, there's no real joy, there's no purpose for your life. Paul write in, in Romans that he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wage of your sin, the, that which you owe, as we've already said, for your decisions is death. But Paul writes in Romans 5.8, he says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while you were an enemy, while you were separated and apart from God, while you were doing that which pleased yourself, He said, Christ died for us. Paul will write, he's like, man, for a righteous person, for a good dude, somebody might dare consider to die. But for a sinner, like who would die for an enemy? Who would choose to lay down their life for the one who continues to spit in your face? 
Who, who of us would choose to lay down our lives for the one who, who is a threat to your family, who, who causes you frustration, who brings hurt and pain to your heart? None of us have got that kind of strength. Paul says, man, for somebody you love and cherish, you might consider to die, but Christ's abundant love and gift for us this Christmas is that while you were enemies of his, separated, man, his love for you died on the cross because he wanted his kids to have relationship back with him. Paul will say in Acts chapter 13, he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Paul's in essence saying this. He says through Jesus. I sat with a couple doing some pre-marriage counseling last week and looking at uh, both coming from a divorced past. And you can just see the pain. You can hear them make comments like, man, I just... I feel, I feel bad about this. I know I, I shouldn't have done this back in the past. And being able to look at them and say, hey, don't you recognize that through Jesus and a surrender to Jesus, all the guilt, all the shame, all the pain, all the past decisions, all the things that you are so dirty and feel so heavy about, he forgets it. He says, man, through the law of Moses, that which we uh, was instilled, that through works, if you having to go and atone and you having to try to make these sacrifices to cover. He said, Jesus has done away with all that. He said that through his birth and through his life and through his death and resurrection, he's like, man, he's reconciled all that stuff. He has forgiven it. You don't have to carry around the guilt of your past decisions. You don't got to carry around the shame of what you did yesterday. He says, who everyone who believes is freed from everything. That is good news. Man, I've done some stuff in my past that is jacked up. I still make this. Man, that's my wife. I still do stuff that's jacked up. And it says, man, because of Jesus, when we say, Jesus, I need you. In an instant, he says, man, you're freed of it. You don't have to carry around that weight anymore. Man, I, I want to walk with you. I, I want to hold your hand. I want to go for walks in the garden again with you, Sandy. Grant, man, I want to I know you deep, bro. And the only reason, or the only way that was possible is because of the gift of Jesus. Nick and Teresa, if you guys want to come up. There is no greater gift to ever be given than this. There is no gift that you will open in a couple days. There's no gift that you've opened in your past or will ever open that will satisfy the desires of your soul. The inner being, as Paul will say, like no one is saying yes to Jesus. To receive such a gift is to be restored and reunited with a holy God who loves you. I think we fall into the lie that, man, God just wants to instill all these do's and don'ts and this, man, he wants to suck the fun out of our life. And that is a lie. That is the enemy saying God doesn't want what's best from you. And we can choose like Adam and Eve to believe that lie, that God genuinely doesn't want what's best. Or we can look back at Genesis and say, no, God chose to put man in the middle of abundance. He chose to put man in the middle of his most beautiful creation. All throughout the scriptures, we see a God that's like, man, if you'll just come with me, I want what's best. 
We see them, we see the Israelites, I mean, they're complaining. They've been set free from slavery. A couple days into the wilderness, they're like, man, I wish we were back in slavery because at least we have pots of meat and bread we sat around and ate. And what does God do? Provides man. He, he provides this, this covering over the ground of an abundance of food for them. They're like, man, bread's good, but I want some meat. I'll send you quail. He sends an abundance of quail. He sends water to come gushing like a geyser out of a rock. He continues to offer opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for his kids to come back to him. And this Christmas, guys, you have the opportunity. If you've never said yes to Jesus, one of two people, if you've never said yes to Jesus, please, as we enter into a time of worship and communion now, we'll have guys from the prayer team, some ladies up front, Know that you get to come and unwrap the gift of joy and peace and eternal life today. That's a free gift to you. Please come and open that up. Some of you guys, man, you maybe have said yes to Jesus at one time and, and you've since kind of put it on the shelf. I always think about the little penguin Wheezy from Toy Story, you know, like he got opened up one time and then he got kind of tucked away and became all dusty. I think for some of us, we've, we've at one time, we've opened up the gift of Jesus and we, we've, we've maybe said yes and surrendered our lives to him, but man, we just, we've forgotten the value of it. We've grown weary in pursuing and we've grown weary and just become tired in the pursuit of following Jesus. And this is an opportunity to come and say, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I repent of that way of thinking and I just need to ask you to help remind me of who you are. I was wrestling with that even in preparation for this. Of like, God, I need you to remind me deep in the depths of my soul. So when I open up your word, man, I'm come undone to the point of tears of just thanking you for who you are. I need to be reminded of that all the time. And so in this time of worship and prayer, as you go to the corners, there's communion. It's an opportunity to take that little wafer and break it in half. Remember, Jesus, you came as the gift that was broken I take this juice and I drink it as remembrance of your blood, the only blood that had the power enough to fully and forever atone. And you did that just for me. That before the foundations of the earth were laid, you thought of us in this place and in this time. And I just want to thank you for that. I need to remember. And so as we enter into a time of worship now. Again, I would invite you, come. If you have not said yes to Jesus, please, please don't leave without opening that up. Take that gift home with you and know that it will change your life. Father, we love you. We thank you for a chance to open up your word. We thank you for a chance to, to continue to worship. And Lord, I pray for those who do not know you, have never said yes to you, maybe are afraid, God, that you will give them the boldness and the courage and that even right now, Holy Spirit, you will drape them in an overwhelming sense of your love that they would surrender to you. God, soften the hearts of those who are, who are far from you, Lord, and whisper into their hearts and their ears that you love them and you want relationship back with them. Lord, those of us who have Maybe we've just forgotten or we've grown a little apathetic or whatever the case may be. Will you just help draw us back to remember, to remember the gift of your son, to remember the life and the joy and the freedom that you offer us, Lord.